I was recently thinking and pondering, probably 17 years ago, when I was preparing to move from the Midwest to Southern California, calling a man that I'd never met before by the name of Rod Boston, and getting some advice from him, and finding him to be an incredible source of encouragement to me. And we've only talked a number of times over the years, but one of the things that impressed me was his encouragement that he was willing to provide, and also the good that the church in Ontario was associated with. And whether it is fair or unfair, right or wrong, good or bad, churches, congregations have reputations across the country. And while some would suggest that in Tennessee or in other places in Indiana where I'm from, every once in a while the question will come up, are there Christians out in California? Yes, there are. And they're some of the finest people in the country. And you are all a good group of individuals. And this church has a good reputation. And that's because of the preaching that's been done here. It's because of the shepherds that you have that provide for your oversight. It's because of the servants that are associated with teaching classes and trying to spread the gospel. And it's because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we hear of in other places in the country. And for that, we are indeed very grateful. And I am encouraged by your presence together today. And I invite you to study along as we talk about some things that are, I believe, important to understand and helpful to get our heads around. If you'd like to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the final book of the, Old, of the New Testament, we're going to look at chapter 20 here in just a moment or two. And let me express to you how grateful uh, Wendy and I are to be here. Uh, we are just delighted to have the opportunity to spend some time with you. And we appreciate your shepherds and the work that they are doing and the invitation to be with you. And to talk about things that really matter, including when time comes to an end. We began our series of studies this morning by talking about heaven and hell and Hades and how they all interplay with each other. And I encourage you uh, to think about those things and I hope that they are encouraging to you. I want us to talk this morning about the subject of premillennialism, which is a subject that you may say, I don't know what you're talking about. That's okay. We'll try to educate you. Or if you do know about it, you may say, I don't know why it's important to talk about it. And I hope that you'll understand why it is important to have at least a, a thumbnail sketch of what it is and what it is about and what it means and why it's important especially as we try to interact with those in the world that have these various beliefs, having an understanding of where they're coming from is often advantageous and to our advantage in being able to share with them these messages. So thank you for being an encouragement to me. I hope that we can encourage you as well. When we think about premillennialism, it's a long word, that really involves the idea of before the thousand years, pre-millennium, is where that word comes from. It is believed by many religious groups and embodies a number of popular or particular teachings. And in fact, I was 
talking with some individuals just recently about some of these various topics. When those who believe in premillennialism, the idea of Jesus coming to this earth and reigning, they typically have two or three major tenets of their beliefs. And one of those is that Jesus was always intent on establishing an earth-based kingdom. And that when he died on the cross some 2,000 years ago, that was a mistake or that was a problem or that was an interruption in God's plan. And we look at that and say that that doesn't make any sense given Ephesians chapter 1 where it talks about before the foundation of the world is God's eternal plan in Christ Jesus and similar passages like that. Similarly, the church was established as an alternative to the earth-based kingdom. So once Jesus died and God kind of uh, put his head or hand to his head and said, well, we've, we've goofed up. Things didn't work out the way that I wanted. The church was established to be this substitute kingdom. And the idea of where millennial comes from is this third component of premillennialism. And that is Jesus is going to return and establish an earth-based kingdom in physical Judea, Jerusalem, Israel, and will reign for a thousand years. And there are all kinds of charts in these days uh, with the advent of the Internet and Google knows everything and, and it gets everything right. The Internet gets everything right, of course. And that, I'm being facetious there. Uh, but you can find so many really good resources, and I can direct you to them, of a chart that shows you what premillennialists would believe, teach, and practice in their beliefs. So I want us to start today with this idea of an overview of premillennialism. I want us to talk about the thousand years. I want us to talk about the kingdom itself. And then I want us to, as we will do over the course of the next three days, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, come to a biblical conclusion. What does the Bible say on these subjects? Because that's what we are ultimately concerned about, is seeing what God's Word has on the subject. When it comes to an overview of premillennialism, premillennialism is best understood if one understands dispensationalism. So we're going to have some big words today. And I'm not that smart, so I have to break these things down and make them so that even I can understand them. But the fact is, is we often use the term of dispensations or dispensationalism to refer to the three big portions of biblical history and world history. That is patriarchal, mosaic, and Christian. And chances are most of our junior high kids, and there are a lot of young people who are here, and that is wonderful that you are present, and thank you for being an encouragement to those of us that are a little bit older. Uh, but it is often used to refer to the age in which Job and Adam would have lived, and then the age of Moses and the Jewish people of the Old Testament, and then when Jesus comes around, the third dispensation. Well, that's an appropriate way, but we're going to use it in another way, and that is it is used to refer to seven periods in history wherein God's plan failed, and each time is resulting in another plan. Now, that term seven is the idea of completeness, seemingly in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. But it is something that is associated with worldly teaching. So this is not what the scriptures are teaching. We're talking about what the world is suggesting and trying to clear up some of that confusion. 
those that believe this, that the church is an accident or a substitute for God's earth-based kingdom, would say that the church is now in the fifth with uh, the idea of it being something that's going to give way to the sixth and seventh and final kingdoms as well, or periods of time. The church now is in this fifth period, and then the thousand-year reign of Christ would be the sixth, and then, you guessed it, eternity would be the seventh. The interesting thing about this is there's always truth mixed with error in order to make it seem more plausible or more reasonable. And that seems to be what's happening here because we believe in eternity. We believe that Christ reigns. Uh, We believe that the church is now in existence. But when you mess that up, you get a picture that is void of biblical teachings, which will bring us to the conclusion of our study in 25 or 30 minutes when we look at some biblical conclusions as well. So I want us to start here by looking at this and understand that a key to understanding what's wrong with premillennialism is also an understanding of the thousand years and the kingdom. And that's the heart of our, our study. We're going to spend a good 10 to 15 minutes talking about the thousand years. We'll spend 5 or 10 minutes talking about the kingdom. And then we'll spend 5 or 10 minutes drawing ourselves to a close. I want us to use Revelation chapter 20 to answer this question of what is meant by a thousand years. Because the Bible does speak about a thousand years. The Bible does make reference to a thousand years. The Bible speaks clearly about the thousand years and what does that mean. And let us go to the text here in Revelation chapter 20. And I want to read to get the context about four to six verses, starting in verse 1, where he says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon. And we don't have to wonder who the dragon is or what it represents. It is the devil and Satan. Bound him for a thousand years, cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and the judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or the image, had not received his mark, on their foreheads or their hands, and they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now drop down and continue two more verses, and then I want us to make a series of three or four observations. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests... But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So just in those six verses, we see reference to the thousand years multiple times. So it is a biblical concept. We've got to make sure we figure out what it is and what it is not. And so we're going to consider that, that it seems that there are two major groups of people who are in focus here, particularly in verses 4, 5, and 6. You have individuals who are righteous 
who have been faithful to the Lord, who have done what the Lord has asked them to do. And you have individuals who are not subject to the Lord's grace because of their disobedience to the Lord in their life. Similar to Luke chapter 16, which we looked at in our Bible class this morning, where you've got a righteous man, uh, and then you've got an unrighteous man. You have Lazarus, and you have the rich man, each of whom are going to experience eternity, but they will experience it in vastly different ways. The fact is, is the scriptures seem to teach here, as we read a little bit further, that Satan will continue to have power for a time, but will eventually lose that power. Look at verse 7, where it says, When the thousand years have expired, when this period of time has come to an end, Satan is going to be released from his prison. And he'll go and deceive the nations which are in the four corners, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And then in verse 9, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them, notice what happens to him at the conclusion of the story, is that he is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Like underlining words in your Bible or making little notes, maybe the words forever and ever is important to underline in verse 10. It is associated with the eternity that is, that is, that is a part of hell, similarly to the part that is with heaven. So Satan's going to continue to have this power for a time, but eventually he's going to lose that power and he will be cast into judgment. And speaking of judgment, Read just a couple of more verses in verses 11 through 15 where we see that a judgment will occur and that punishment will be rendered accordingly. In verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. Notice verses 12 and following. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God And books were open. Someone once said that when we get to heaven, it'll be an open book test. And I thought that was kind of neat that they pointed that out. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, the death and Hades, which goes back to our Bible study period this morning, delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is not so much an exposition of Revelation chapter 20. But Revelation chapter 20 is key to this study. Which is why we have spent so much time looking at the text. Which brings us then to our second aspect of our understanding of the thousand years. And that is... If a person argues or agrees that the thousand years are literal or it's a literal thousand year period, one has to also conclude that the other statements in the book of Revelation are literal as well. Remember one of the points that I brought out if you were here in our Bible class period is that there are literal and there are figurative statements in the Bible. There are literal things. Uh, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that does not believe shall be condemned. And we take that literally, such that 
virtually everybody that's here has been baptized and those that have not been baptized we're asking you to strongly consider obeying the gospel this morning so we take that literally and the reason that we take it literally is because not only is mark 16 15 and 16 a passage that uh, we quoted but there are so many other passages that speak to the authenticity and the realness of water baptism for the purpose of salvation that being said are there figurative statements in the new testament And as one preacher back in the Midwest would say, you need to nod your head up and down. Yes, because there are lots of them. And I know that because I think I haven't talked to everybody here, but I can I can see fairly well. And everybody's got two eyes and everybody's got two hands. If you don't, uh, that's okay too. Better that's that we have no problem with that. But the fact of the matter is, is we are born, generally speaking, with two eyes and two hands and two ears. And Jesus himself, what did he say? He says, if one of your eyes offends you, pluck it out. Is that literal or is that figurative? Well, we understand what that means. Every, anybody with common sense says, well, he's talking figuratively there. He's trying to get this picture across for an understanding of you get to heaven no matter what it takes to get there. So we understand the Bible does have literal and figurative language. Well, go back to chapter 19, just a page in your Bibles in the book of Revelation, and read with me in verses 11 and following. And I want us to make a couple of quick observations. You may say, I don't know where you're going in chapter 19. You'll see here in about 30 seconds. In verse 11, the text says, I saw heaven opened. So John, the revealer, the revelator, John says, I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So if we're going to believe in a literal thousand years, we have to also, based on Revelation chapter 19, which precedes chapter 20, believe in a literal white horse. In verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had the name written that no one knew except himself. And so we have to conclude that we have uh, that he saw literal eyes of fire. Verse 15 is an interesting statement. Uh, Unless you are a magician or some sort of a trapeze artist, this may not make sense to you, but verse 15 speaks and says, Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron, and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. I see three different figurative uh, aspects just in that one verse, including the idea of a sword in the mouth. In verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. In chapter 20, the text that we spent so much time reading, there's reference to a bottomless pit and a real chain. There's the idea of a second death. The fact is, is we understand that these things are figurative in nature and not literally to be understood or appreciated or seen. I have long thought that John must have struggled to go to heaven, to picture heaven, to see heaven, and to be able to translate that message into everyday Greek or everyday English for us to really be able to appreciate. You know, there are certain things that we see that are just indescribable. You cannot put words to how wonderful it is or how wonderful it felt to see whatever you were seeing. 
You know, we were uh, we have we have snow in central Tennessee, not this time of year, but we don't have mountains with snow on it. And trying to describe that to people back in the mid south is really difficult unless you can see it with your own eyes. Or so we're taking pictures of it, saying, "See what we saw, right?" There's no way to describe that. So we used figurative ways. And it was glowing as if the sun was on fire and sparkling like diamonds upon the mountaintops. And we used all this language in simile or metaphor. It seems as if John is doing the same here because he's really struggling, it seems to me, to communicate how wonderful heaven is and how horrific Satan really was and is as well. So he's trying to get that message across. Now the scriptures teach here that Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years as referenced in verses 1, 2, and 3. I would suggest to you that indeed Satan will be and presently is bound during our lives, but he does have some power. So are there things that Satan cannot do to us? And the answer is yes. Satan cannot destroy your faith. He can inhibit your faith. He can help the process of getting you to give up on your faith. But Satan cannot destroy you spiritually. I know that because passages like James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Flee Satan. And he will flee from you. Resist him and he will, re- he will be resisted and flee from you. I know because of passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 10. One of the most important passages, at least it seems to me, in all of 1 Corinthians. And one that is easily and often quoted by preachers and others. Where the Bible tells us that take heed lest you fall. For there is a way of escape that God provides For all of the common ways in which we are tempted. I'm broadly paraphrasing verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But God provides that way of escape. The point is this. Satan has an opportunity to tempt us. Has the opportunity to maim us. Go back and read the first couple of chapters of Job. And then read the rest of the lengthy book. And you'll see where that comes to play. But in the end, what's going to happen to Satan? What will ultimately happen to Satan when the whole story is revealed? And that is, as found in 1 Corinthians 15 or Revelation chapter 20, he will be completely, totally annihilated and destroyed. Not annihilated or destroyed in the sense that he would no longer exist. It seems to me that Satan is going to exist for all of eternity, but he will be captive to the place that God has prepared for the devil and his angels. Remember that phrase that we looked at in our Bible class this morning. Hell is a place that really isn't designed for us. God doesn't want us to go there, but he will send us there if we are disobedient to him. And if you weren't here in our Bible class period, I wanted just to say again, I understand that that may not be uh, spiritually uplifting or politically correct to talk about hell in very real ways, but hell is real. And it is a place that is reserved for the devil and his angels and for those who are cowardly and for those who are uh, wrong in God's sight as outlined in the passages that we looked at earlier today. Turn over, if you would, very quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, five chapters over where we were looking at just a moment or so ago. And I want to read verses 54 through the uh, near the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a very powerful text. My favorite verse in all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is verse 19. 
just as an aside. And this is a good verse to remember as to why you're a Christian in the first place. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable or some versions use the word miserable. The point is this. If you are focused on your wealth, if you're focused on your income, if you're focused on your family, if you're focused on your job, if you're focused on your hobbies, and that's all you're ever focused on, you are miserable and pitiable. That's not my opinion. That's what the Holy Spirit says. But if you have a spiritual focus and a spiritual compass and a spiritual destination, then you have hope. And that makes all the difference. I I gave a short little invitation talk just a week and a half ago to the church at uh, Northfield Boulevard in Murfreesboro. And I I said to them what I've said to, to groups of Christians all around the country. If you want to make life difficult for whoever's going to preach your funeral, don't become a Christian. And you'll make his life miserable. But if you want to help the preacher man who's going to stand before your casket or before your urn and make life easier for him... Become a Christian. Now, don't do it just for that purpose. Don't get me wrong. But one of the hardest things to do that I've ever done is to preach a half a dozen funerals. Uh, in, my, in my lifetime, I've probably done 20 or so. Uh, but a, a third of them or so were for people who were not, weren't Christians. Young and old alike. And it's miserable to try to give hope to a family when you know in your head there's really not much hope you can give them. So you do your best to try to help them and try to teach, which is what we should always try to do on occasions like that. But in verse 54 of chapter 15, it says, When this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying written, Death is swallowed up in victory. And then a quote going all the way back to Hosea. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, given all of this, be therefore steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. The point is this. It seems to me, and I could be wrong. I've been wrong a a few times in my life. But based on everything that we can read in Revelation chapter 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and other similar passages, the thousand years in which Satan is given power is likened to a time in which he has power today. Not to completely destroy, because he can't. But ultimately, he will be destroyed and cast into hell, where he will spend his eternity along with those who serve him. I want to spend just five or ten minutes talking about the kingdom, though. Because given that premillennialism deals with the kingdom so much, it seems to me that a couple of observations are made, and then I want us to make one side application from Matthew chapter 6 or Luke chapter 11. Sometimes the term kingdom is synonymous with the church. For example, in Matthew chapter 16... A passage that we read in our Bible class this morning. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And that is a same idea as I'm going to build the kingdom. When you have a kingdom, you necessarily have to have a king and you have to have subjects. 
And indeed, it was Pilate who put king. This is the king on the cross. Remember that some of the Jewish leaders said, don't call him king, call him, quote, the king. And he said, what I have written, I have written. I've always thought that was just really profound, the way that that Pilate professed him to be king, while the very people who were supposed to be calling him king refused to call him that in the first place. So I think that's interesting, and I don't think that's by accident. Other times, the term is exclusive to the future or to heaven. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11, the text says, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified before in the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Things that would happen into the future there in 1 Peter chapter 1. And verse 11. The point that I'm making is this. Is generally speaking, when we talk about the church and the kingdom, we talk about them hand in hand and in synonymous ways. Not always, but generally speaking. The reason that I point this out is that we need to understand what the kingdom is. Now here's an aside that goes all the way back to Matthew chapter 6 or Luke chapter 11. Now many of you can quote Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 through 13, whether you know it or not, whether you know that you can quote it or not. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those of you that grew up maybe in a particular denomination that did not grow up in the church, you may have that memorized better than some others. And memorizing that is not necessarily a bad thing. Memorizing passages is always a good thing. Incidentally, just as an aside, I grew up being taught that saying your kingdom come, it would be incorrect because it's already come. And I understand that concept. You understand what I'm saying here? That when Jesus was saying before his death on the cross, we are praying for the kingdom to come. The kingdom hadn't come yet because the Christ kingdom didn't come until the cross. To, to Pentecost and all the things that transpired between Luke 24, Luke 23, 24, all the way to Acts chapter 1, for example, chapter 2. But the point that I'm making simply is this. Is it inappropriate for us in your own prayers, privately or publicly, to say, I want the kingdom to come and broaden its borders. Someone could pray that and mean it that way. And so maybe my, uh, my belief on Matthew chapter 6 has shifted over the years a little more. I have a sermon about praying well where we use Matthew chapter 6, those of you that are in education, as a scaffold and use that as an opportunity to pray more fervently and to pray more ably. But the kingdom is something that you and I are not looking for to come down the road. Those in religious circles that believe in premillennialism would suggest we're still waiting on Jesus to establish the kingdom. And so Jesus is apparently not their king yet. But we submit to King Jesus. And we believe that he's the king. And we believe that he is in power. Let me, and will always be in power. And let me conclude with this. And that is what I call the biblical conclusion. And that is, through an examination of scripture, it seems to me that there are three big, major reasons why it's a problem. So we do not believe as students of the Bible, as members of the Lord's church, that premillennialism is accurate. You may say, well, I've already gotten that point. But let me, let me just share in the last four to five minutes here why that's the case. Number one is this. An earth 
based kingdom was never a part of the New Testament discussion. And we could spend a good 10 minutes just on that. Let's spend two minutes talking about that. For example, let's look at these passages. And we're going to look at them out of order in order to, uh, I think, you have a better flow of, of thinking looking at it this way. In Luke chapter 19 and in verse 11, the statement is that they heard these things. He spoke a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because... They thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So just kind of put that in your brain. They think that the kingdom is going to appear. So they understood the kingdom wasn't yet, but that it was to come at some point. Now, back up uh, to the previous book of the New Testament, to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, where it says, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand, one on your left, in your glory, or in your kingdom. And in Luke chapter 24, going back to the Gospel of Luke, and again we're looking at these out of order, Luke 24 and verse 21, we were hoping that it was he, this is Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus. You remember those two characters? I love the story of the road to Emmaus for so many different reasons. But he said, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel, and besides this, today is the third day since these things have happened. What are they saying? We were hoping that the kingdom was going to come from... Now, they were thinking what? A physical kingdom. Jesus coming in on a horse saying, Everyone salute me, and I am now going to conquer Rome. That's what they were really looking for and anticipating uh, and hoping for. But yet Jesus repeatedly said, and we conclude with this verse on this point in John chapter 18, Hey, that's not why I am here. If you think I'm here to destroy the Romans, if you think I'm here to redeem uh, people from a foreign government, I'm here to say, submit to the Roman authorities. Do what they've asked you to do. Luke 20, pay the taxes as are due unto the Caesar. But in John chapter 18, I think the most convincing passage that is referenced here, it says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of the world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom isn't from here. Those are the words of Jesus himself. And so the point that I'm simply trying to make is that Jesus, from the very beginning, says, my kingdom is not of this world. Hey, by the way, my kingdom is not earthly. And in case you missed it, my kingdom is not going to be in this world. It will be global and eternal And it will involve citizens of the world. But I'm not going to come and live on earth for a thousand years or for a less period of time and sit on a throne and say, you will now do my bidding. Is he king? Of course he is. But not in an earth-based way. Let me suggest to you, secondly, to argue premillennialism is to argue for the, what I would call, the insufficiency of God. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1 where it said, Before the foundation of the world. And 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 reminds us where the Apostle Peter writes. And he says, He indeed, speaking of Christ Jesus, was foreordained. Underline that in your Bible if you like. He was foreordained because before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Jesus Death was not a mistake. 
And don't let anyone ever suggest to you or tell you or try to teach you that it was a mistake. It was purposeful. It was designed. It was divine. It was part of God's eternal plan. And it wasn't what the Jews thought, failure on the part of Jesus. It was success to overcome death because three days later, what did he do? He overcame death. And he lived again. And he lives today. And he lives as our king. And he will always be our king. And there's nothing wrong with praying to our God and saying we're praying through our King Jesus the Christ. Which brings me to the third and the final observation. And that is, it seems to me, premillennialism waters down the church's importance. Go back to Ephesians chapter 3. We looked at chapter 1. But I want to read just three or four verses here very rapidly before we draw ourselves to a close. In verses 8 through 13, one of my favorite parts of Ephesians chapter 3, he says... This grace was given so that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is Ephesians 3, now verse 9. And make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Paul's writing to a church in Ephesus in Asia. From the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This does not sound like the church is an unimportant afterthought, but rather a foreordained creation of God, the bride of Christ himself. And for someone to say, well, Jesus came, he died, he's going to come back and establish a kingdom. What are we doing here in the church if it's not the kingdom? Is it seems to me downright disrespectful to the church and, and the beauty that she is. And we need to appreciate how wonderful it really is that we are a part of it. God doesn't add us to the church, Acts chapter 2, as an afterthought, but as part of his eternal plan. Time will come to an end, and we need to be ready. Those that teach premillennialism may suggest as, uh, as an addendum that that would give people another opportunity to make their lives right with God. But as we started this morning at 9.30, and as we conclude now, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this is the judgment. The point that I'm making simply is this. You have an appointment with death, and it won't be another opportunity that will be provided to you once this life is over. There is finality associated with death. There is finality associated with judgment. And we want to make sure that we spend eternity with our God. If you're not a Christian, we're hoping that you'll become a Christian. The vast majority probably are. And you care about spiritual things, which is why you're here. But we want to do all that we can to encourage you to make whatever corrections need to be made, publicly or privately. You know, most of the things that we do that are wrong, that we think or say, we can take care of privately between ourselves and our Creator. And we encourage you to do so as we sing in just a moment. But it may be that you need to either A, become a Christian and be baptized. We'll take care of that today. And we will be excited about that as much as you will be excited about that. Or it could be that you are a child of God, not living correctly, and you want brethren to pray for you. That's great. We stand ready to pray with you and for you. If we can help you in any way, let us know while together we stand and while we sing.